And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. All right, welcome to the latest episode of the Shamrock Live. I'm Pete Sampson from the home office this week, no longer at a Marriott property somewhere in a nondescript part of the country. Uh, it is Friday, October 13th, a day away from Notre Dame USC. Just a programming note for next week, if you're a Shamrock Live listener. There won't be a Shamrock Live a week from today as Notre Dame is on its bye week. So I'm going to take that afternoon to recharge a little bit, um, as Notre Dame football probably could use as well. Um, I guess I don't have the excuse of midterms, though. But uh, as usual, if you're a new to the show, thanks for joining. Um, if you've been here before, you sort of know how this works. It's kind of our sports talk radio but with sanity um you can hop in the queue and i will call you to the stage to ask your question or you can just post it in the chat like clayton m just did um but the show works best if you hop in the queue and can ask your question that way that way it feels a little bit more interactive um but yeah i guess until uh some people hop in the queue and start asking questions uh i'll go with clayton m and he wants to know he cuts to the chase here is Marcus Freeman's runway running out? Um, and, you know, it's like you probably saw the news today that uh, Father John Jenkins, the university president, will be stepping down at the end of the academic year. So that means Marcus Freeman will go into year three with a new president, a new athletic director, and also a new chairman of the board of trustees, which is um, a bit dicey if you're not the guy that the previous people picked. Um, so. You know, is the runway running out? I don't think so, but there's there's a significant amount of runway that will be behind Marcus Freeman by the time the season ends. Um, and that could, you know, be impacted by what happens tomorrow night against USC or Clemson or, at this point, Wake Forest, Pittsburgh, and Stanford. Um, you know, Notre Dame's season, I think, has been a, more volatile than Freeman would have predicted or expected or even certainly wanted. Um, and I thought that was kind of one of the things that I was looking to see most from Freeman this year is like, how do you, how do you almost get more boring? Um, and, you know, for all the things that Brian Kelly was not, um, one thing that he was, was predictable. Uh, and, you know, games like Duke, Louisville, um, those are not games that Brian Kelly lost and the, 2017 to 2021 uh, run that he had there, he, he figured out how to make Notre Dame predictable, uh, almost boring. Uh, and, I, you know, the bet on Freeman was, all right, how do you take the boring and the predictable, but then build on it? Um, and I think what Freeman is experiencing there is that boring can be hard. Uh, boring can be hard to build. It's You're sort of beating back human nature a little bit. And there are a lot of good coaches out there. I think that probably the biggest misread on my part from last week was just like Jeff Brom knows his stuff um, and Marcus Freeman is still learning as he goes. So it, um, 
I don't. I wouldn't say that the runway is running out on Marco Freeman in any way, uh, but certainly there's a lot. By the end of the season, there's going to be more behind him than probably he would have liked uh, to be. Um, I think that going into year three is going to be much more of a kind of a prove it situation for him. Um, Joey H, you are first up in the queue. So Joey H, I'm calling you to the stage on the Shamrock Live. Loading. We'll see if it works. We'll give it a sec. We're hopeful to see Joey H on the stage. When Marcus first got hired, you mentioned how he he might look even worse given the schedule and how that changed from the late stages of the BK era to now. Um, obviously, you know Louisville being the loss is not necessarily a top game on the schedule type issue, but how much does that come into play and just giving him a little bit more of a grace period to learn when their schedule's been pretty tough? Yeah, it's it. Um question because yeah that was something that at the very end uh or the very end of brian kelly at the beginning of marcus freeman i sort of wrote like look freeman's record is not going to be as good as bk's was at the end because one of the reasons the schedule is so much harder um it's bizarre to look back at um sort of the end of the kelly era and just see how few sort of top 10 uh and top 25 type games that he coached in, um, you know, through, it's not his fault that USC was way down uh, for the bulk of his schedule or that, um, you know, Florida state was way down, but those were, you know, certainly a benefit of him. Um, you know, if you just look at the regular season, um, you know, 2020 played two top 25 teams. One was number one Clemson. The other one was number 25 North Carolina. 2021 regular season, two ranked teams, 18 Wisconsin and seven Cincinnati. Uh, 2019 was uh, tougher. You know, you had at Georgia and then Virginia was somehow ranked. And then you had at Michigan, which obviously was difficult. And then Navy was ranked. Um, But, you know, it's like you just look at Marcus Freeman's first schedule, number two, Ohio State, number 16, BYU. Number 16, Syracuse. Number five, Clemson. Number five, USC. So he played five ranked teams in his first season, which is how many – Brian Kelly was averaging sort of like two and a half to three um, during that run at the end. In 2018, he played four ranked teams in the regular season. In 2017, he actually played five ranked teams. It was Georgia was 15th, USC was 11th, NC State was 14th, Miami was 7th. And Stanford at the end was 21st. And I mean, Brian Kelly's record that year against ranked teams was two and three. Uh, in 2018, he was four and zero. 2019 went two and two. 2020 went two and zero, and then 2021 went one and one. So it's not like he was blowing the doors off ranked teams. You know, Marcus Freeman in year one was three and two against ranked teams. Um, you know, and this year he's one and two so far. Um, but like the, the number of like top five teams or top 10 teams that Marcus Freeman has faced in his first couple of seasons has been, I mean, it's been remarkable. Um, Cause that's just not something that Brian Kelly ran into a whole lot. Um, you know, and certainly they, he lost almost every game against the top 10 team that he played. You know, it's, Georgia in 19, uh, beat Clemson in 20, 
lost to Clemson and Alabama in 20 in the postseason, um, lost to Cincinnati in 21. You know, Marcus Freeman lost to Oklahoma State in 2022. You have to sort of include that too. You know, the other top 10 games that Brian Kelly played beat Stanford in 2018, uh, lost to Clemson in the playoff. Uh, and then the year before that, got smoked by Miami uh, down in South Beach. So, yeah, I, I think that, you know, the Louisville game is the one that I really wanted to see Freeman win from a, all right, is he growing as a head coach point of view? Because um, I thought, you know, you know, that 30-game win streak against the ACC was going to end at some point. But to end with a five-turnover performance um, and to see the offense bogged down the way that it did was was surprising to me. Um, so, yeah, it's like the ranked opponent part of it is a real thing, that his schedules have been harder than what BK had played um, toward the end of his tenure at Notre Dame. But it um, – you can't go out and put a performance out like you did against Louisville. That's that's sort of one of those things where I'm not saying that he needed to have grown out of that after 21 career games, but uh, to be down, what, it was like 30-13 to 13 at one point or 33-13, um, that was – you would like to think that Notre Dame could be sort of beyond that at least. Um, and – but I, but I'm with you that you know, in in some ways that the schedule's difficulty, you have to factor that in a little bit. But I, what I'd, I would like to think that would apply more to USC and Clemson than it would against Louisville last week. All right, next up we've got Benjamin C. Benjamin C. I'm calling you to the stage on the Shamrock Live. Go ahead with your question. Oh, hey! First off, I want to um, thank you for uh, doing this. I think it's pretty cool. Yeah, um, thanks for hopping on. Yeah. Um, so my question is, is, is it justified to be frustrated with the play calling, uh, especially with third and fourth and short over the course of the Louisville game, uh, maybe the Duke game as well? And like, it could be a response of like our offensive line, not necessarily competing at the level they did with Ohio State, but it just seemed almost too cute on, uh, those short, short to go distances. Um, so just, just curious on those thoughts. Yeah. I, I am more in, on your camp on this than Marcus Freeman's. The play calling isn't the issue. I have no problem with the play calling. Um, I hated the fourth down calls against Ohio State um, that ended with the Sam Hartman scramble that looked like a first down that wasn't. Um, you know, it was supposed to be sort of a play action pass. Sam Hartman, as I wrote in my mailbag this week, he does not do play action particularly well. And to have a play action pass where the options were Sherwood stays and Evans doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, you know, and then the second fourth down was, was way too cute where there was like a hurried up scramble that basically let Tommy Eichenberg time up the snap and, and kill the play before it started. So I didn't like those. I didn't like the sort of jet sweep counter motion um, that they ran against Louisville to Chris Tyree that ended with a fumble. Cause that's not something that is a real strength of theirs. It's not something that they'd shown. So I, I don't like trying to, to trick people in short yardage. Like how long have we heard from, you know, Notre Dame's coaches and offensive linemen that the, you know, the strength of a run game is to be able to run the ball when the opponent knows you're going to run it. And I mean, this offensive line has not delivered in any way in that, in that way. So it's um, the fact that, you know, Jabron Payne and Audrick Estime are just getting, scythe down um on third and shorts uh on runs that like 
should work, right? Like if Notre Dame's offensive line is what we thought it was going to be, they will pick that up. Um, but instead, Notre Dame is one of the worst teams in the country in um, yard, or like yards before contact um, on third and shorts. Like we have access to some interesting statistics at the athletic, and one of them is you can sort of parse out third down and whatever, fourth down and whatever distance you want, and then yards before contact. Basically, how quickly is the running back getting hit? And the one that I looked at there was it combined third and fourth downs, and I wanted to look at third and fourth downs and three yards to go or less. So third and three, third and two, third and one. How much ground can the running backs cover before they get hit? And Notre Dame ranks 122nd in the country in that category, and their running backs are averaging – 0.08 yards before contact. So essentially they're they're getting nine inches uh, to navigate before they get hit by a defender or touched by a defender. And like that, that to me does back up some of Freeman's claims that the execution has really been poor. Um, I asked Jared Parker about this during the week. And it's like they're there's all Parker made the point that like when you don't have a dual threat quarterback and they don't, there's always an extra hat in the box because the quarterback is not accounted for as a runner. Let's concede that Sam Hartman can't be an effective runner. Cause again, we, I, I mentioned the, the plays at Ohio state, um, you know, you know, he picked up the, the big one at Duke, but Parker's point is that Notre Dame's offensive operation, and this includes the tight ends position are doing a really poor job of figuring out who that extra defender is. Cause it's okay to have one extra defender that you can't block. You just got to be able to make sure that defender is not where the play is supposed to go. Um, that's where I think communication comes into play. Um, that's where coaching comes into play. I mean, it's also one of the reasons that I, I dislike the offensive line rotation so much against Louisville is because how often do we hear like, five sets of eyes seeing as one or, you know, five guys working as one um, uh, to, in re reference to offensive linemen. Well, that's impossible. If you're rotating guards and centers um, throughout the game, if somebody is injured and they can't practice during the week, then it seems like probably a situation where you should have gone with a different guy uh, to start the game. So it, um, I think Notre Dame has been too cute with some of its play calls, but I'm almost more alarmed with the fact that they can't just hand the ball to Audrey Estime or Jabron Payne on third one and pick up anything. Um, I think the last time Notre Dame picked up a third and one or a fourth and one was Sam Hartman's flip quarterback sneak against Central Michigan. Um, that's not a good place to be. Um, Notre Dame's offensive line should be a lot better than that, but the results are the results. They, ha they haven't been good in that so far. Um, Andrew R., I'm going to call you next to the stage on the Shamrock Live. Um, Andrew R., go ahead with your question. Hey, Pete. So yep. um, as, as, as much scrutiny uh, and, I guess, pressure that Marcus Freeman is under um, right now, I do think Parker's under more pressure mm -hmm considering how bad USC's defense has been kind of translating that into like a big picture view. I think that Notre Dame has kind of forgotten that if you look at the programs that have been the premier programs over the last 10 to 15 years, they got the offense, they got the coordinator hires, right? Like Clemson mm -hmm. became Clem Clemson became Clemson when Venables came in. 
Yeah. Um, or you get like Alabama. Notre Dame got it, got back to being Notre Dame when they got Mike Elko and Chip yes. Long, right? And Alabama took the next step from being, they were already dominant, but then they brought in Lane mm-hmm. Kiffin to really just explode their offense. Um, Oklahoma with Lincoln Riley, even LSU that one year with Joe Brady. I feel like they've got to, if, unless Parker develops, I don't, I don't think that our current defensive coordinator is not, he's fine, but I think that they really need to get this. The next coordinator hires right, whether it's a, stud that comes in or it's somebody they develop like they take a chance on who's got a lot of potential and Mm -hmm. let him be the guy and i'm just would love to get your thoughts on that yeah i'm i'm with you i think that the the coordinator hires um especially for an inexperienced head coach are incredibly critical um and i like you know you go back to i wrote a story about this about a year and a half ago where I talked to a bunch of first time head coaches whose first job was at the power five level. And, um, you know, it's like, I talked to Clark Lee, um, Jeff Halfley at Boston college, Tom Allen at Indiana, Shane Beamer at South Carolina. And then I also reached out to Bob Stoops, um, and chatted with him a little bit about sort of those first hires. And like, sometimes you get them right. Sometimes you get them wrong. Very rarely do you hit at sort of 100% on that, but, you know, Bob Stutz was a, a defensive guy, um, you know, similar to Freeman that way, you know, where you're taking over a Cadillac program, um, but with a defensive mindset. Well, his off- first off screener was Mike Leach. Um, it's really hard to do a lot better than that. Um, and, you know, you're in a situation there where, like, I Marcus Freeman hire there with Jared Parker just, like, there was no great track record of experience. Like I think you needed the Al Golden of offense. Um, I don't know if you necessarily needed like some whiz bang innovator like Garrett Riley, um, but you needed somebody with, I think more experience than what Parker brought to the table. Um, And I think that's shown like, I think Parker's in a really rough spot right now um, because he's, he's in a position where he's, he's not had to sort of dig himself out of this kind of play calling hole before. Um, that's not to say that he can't do it, but you know, it's similar to Marcus Freeman last year after they lose to Marshall and they're almost lose to Cal. You're, you're sort of in like, Whoa, uh, can this guy coach his way out of a crisis? Um, ultimately he did, but that was a really gnarly situation for Notre Dame as a program right now. I think they're in a funk offensively and, you know, whether Parker can get them out of this or not, I don't know. USC's defense is in fact terrible, but like you look back at the USC game last year, their, their defense was worse last year than it is now. And Notre Dame couldn't run the ball. Um, and that was with Tommy Reese as the offensive coordinator who not super experienced, but I think, you know, had, been around Notre Dame knew the personnel inside and out what they could and could not do um you know that's that you know Parker now is under incredible pressure that you know Reese certainly felt himself um after the Stanford game last year but um was able to sort of like muck his way out of it I you know tomorrow night if Notre Dame wins seven to six and that and, and it's on a defensive touchdown I'm not sure Marcus Freeman is going to care a whole lot. Um, but, you know, for Jared Parker, it's like you have to win and bring, you know, something to the party there. Um, and I just – it just feels like they're they're stuck 
and stale offensively. The run game has sort of let them down a little bit. Um, you know, the offensive line has been a disappointment lately. Um, I think, you know, Sam Hartman's ability to connect with a deep ball has fallen off precipitously. The receivers have not made plays. Like the last time a receiver made a third down conversion before Jordan Faison last week was Rico Flores against Ohio State. Um, you know, they just have not they have not delivered to that position. It's um so that that's pretty frustrating. I, I'll be I'm fascinated to sort of watch Notre Dame sidelines maybe a little bit more intently on Saturday night to see if, you know, is Gino Gaduli more involved in play calling? Is Joe Rudolph more involved in some way? I don't know and I doubt that will happen. Um I don't think that Notre Dame can just sort of keep rolling this out and, and hope that things get better without changing anything. And and Freeman sort of intimated that this week. And when I asked him about sort of changing practice schedules, um, you know, it was more a question more about like load management and the guy, guys wearing down and keeping them fresh for Saturday and not grinding them down on Tuesday. And he said like, look, you, you can't keep doing what you did last week and expect different results. So offensively, what does that mean? What, what do you got to do differently in practice um, to have a different result on game days? Does that involve how it's coached? Um, who's coaching it? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that, but I'm, I'm with you hundred percent. Like Notre Dame has to get the coordinators higher, right? I think golden has probably been better than a lot of fans give him credit for. Um, I realize he's not like new school or, you know, the, the recruiting chops maybe haven't been, um, you know, incredible or off the charts there, but you know, like they, they've gotten, they've signed young, very talented linebackers. Um, but what Golden does have that Parker doesn't is just sort of that track record of experience of seeing stuff and knowing how to coach himself out of a crisis. Um, even if the, you know, crisis was of his own making in the past. Um, I think overall, with the exception of the USC game last year, um, you know, in Louisville last week to a point, like I think Notre Dame's played well enough on defense to win every game that they've been in. Um, but they haven't they haven't played well enough on offense to sort of um, hold up that end of the bargain. So, yeah, getting making sure the next dose series is right whenever that moment comes, not, you know, not predicting anything right now. Um, that's paramount for Freeman, especially as an offensive coach. All right, Rob W., I'm going to call you to the stage next on the Shamrock Live. Go ahead with your question. Hey, Pete, how you doing? Great. Perfect, perfect. Well, thank you for doing this. Big fan of all your work. Really appreciate everything. So I'm going to go kind of bigger picture here because we're talking a lot about Marcus Freeman and kind of the right now. And kind of just, if we could just maybe take a step back and look at, you know, he's only brought in one recruiting class. He's only halfway through his second full season. And kind of maybe look at the perspective of, you know, he's got some great players on the way you know, hopefully as long as they sign, you know, uh, borderline five-star receiver, borderline five-star quarterback, um, you know, maybe the best linebacker in the country, you know, some some really solid players coming in. And we've seen the guys that he's brought in, whether it's Flores, Greathouse, Love, you know, Morrison contributing early. So maybe just kind of thinking, you know, if we're, we're looking bigger picture here, you know, maybe, you know, if you're telling me that this is a you know, potentially a season off the rails that could still win 10 games and he wins 19 in his first two years and he's bringing in high level blue chip prospects. Um, maybe, you know, convince me here. Maybe it's not as bad as we all think it is <laughs> just because we're living in the moment of uh, of last week. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you. I feel like 
I, I probably wrote this during the week, but like college football, as much as it's a 12 game season, sometimes it feels like it's 12, one game seasons and you kind of react accordingly. Um, which is not always healthy. I mean, it, it was probably not healthy to see because the Navy game was a one game season, right? It was the only game that they played. And you're like, Oh my God, Notre Dame's never going to lose. Like Sam Hartman, they're going to score 45 points a week. Obviously that wasn't realistic, um, but it felt that way at the time. Um, I think overall, like, look, if Notre Dame can this together, let's just say they would go nine and three. Um, I don't think that would feel incredibly fulfilling, um, but it would sort of demand like you either you split Clemson and USC. I do think winning tomorrow night is paramount to like give the fan base something to hold on to from this season, the same way that the Clemson game was something to hold on to from last season, where like, even if there were huge downs that were tough to stomach when they were happening, as you, the farther you get away from that season, I think the more people will look back and like, oh man, that Clemson game, what a night. Um, Notre Dame needs sort of like a, oh man, what a night tomorrow night against USC. Um, with recruiting, I think like recruiting has been good to very good. Um, I'm not sure I look at the recruiting and feel like it's, a huge difference from where things were under Brian Kelly. Um, and that's not to say like Marcus Freeman isn't recruiting at a higher level than Brian Kelly was. Cause it, he is. It's just one of those things where I thought it would be much farther out um, than I think it's proving to be so far. And, you know, look, you, you sort of see that um, on the roster, right? Like if you swapped in at safety, for whoever's next to Xavier Watts, I think that would make a huge difference. Um, then you would have sort of like the Ben Morrison story, but it's safety. Um, you know, so they still have to figure out a way to close that. Um, I think that if this season taught us anything, it's like it doesn't really matter what you're doing unless you have the quarterback position figured out. I like what Notre Dame's doing at the quarterback position and recruiting. Um, you know, to get Minchie at the very end last year, CJ Carr coming up, uh, and then Deuce Knight beyond, that's – sets you up into a good spot. And like Marcus Freeman has seen, like if you don't know what you have at quarterback, go get a transfer. Um, that I think is an important lesson too. But like, yeah, I think the the bigger picture point that you made, which I think is interesting is like, all right, let's say, let's say they go 10 and two. Um, heck let's go crazy. Let's say they go 10 and two and they, they don't make the new year six, but they win kind of a minorish bowl game. Like, let's say they beat like Texas A&M and the ReliaQuest Bowl or something. Um, if he's sitting at 20 wins after two years, like that's a pretty good spot to be uh, for a first year head coach. Uh, that is going to take some doing obviously. Right. Um, you know, I think they're, they're much more likely to go nine and three than they are 10 and two right now. But um, even if they got to 18 wins over two years, if they, you know, back to back nine wins, I think that, only, only, I'm air quoting here, only winning nine games with Sam Hartman would feel a little disappointing. Um, I think in some ways maybe winning nine games with Drew Pine is like actually overachieving and we didn't know it at the time. Um, I just want to see like from here on out not have a, a 10 men on the field moment, a rotating offensive lineman in-game moment. Um weird use of timeouts moment um ignoring analytics sometimes but using it other like 
I think there have been some spots in the last three weeks. You know, there was a question about play calling. Like, I think they got too cute against Ohio State on fourth down. Like, that kind of stuff. I got If Notre Dame can win nine games and we, we're we not talking about getting out coached or a coaching mistake from here on out, I think that would be a real positive. I mean, in the, the NC State game, I think we all watched that and saw Jared Parker counterpunch in a really devastating way against Tony Gibson and Dave Doran where NC State had no idea what Notre Dame was doing. It felt like Parker was ahead on the call sheet, um, but it's felt like he's been behind ever since. So I, I would like to see Notre Dame get through the season and coaching sort of feel like the reason they won against USC or the reason they won against Clemson. Um, I think that would kind of give people a good good vibe going into the offseason. All right, Sean G., you are next up on the Shamrock Live. Go ahead with your question. Just to rehash history, um, I actually think having clarity on what happened with this is, at least um, from my standpoint, it has implications on just how I view the program going forward, right? So with, with last week's performance offensively against Louisville, portions of the fan base are, of course, resurfacing um, and revisiting the offensive coordinator search from mm-hmm. the offseason and, of course, the Andy Ludwig debacle. Um, and the narrative continues, at least from what I am seeing, to be pushed that Notre Dame is unwilling to shell out money for top assistance based on the assumption that the Andy Ludwig buyout is the reason, you know, why he's not the offensive coordinator or that that was, you know, the deal breaker within that whole, um, that whole series of events. So as that really unfolded, right, there was a lot of information that swirled. There was like that Jack Swarbrick letter to the fan base that I don't really think gave any real confidence or or clarity to the situation. (laughs) So I'm just really curious from your perspective um, or for your, you know, from your insider perspective, really, what was your read on that whole debacle? And, and really, was it just purely Notre Dame's unwillingness to pay a buyout that is the reason why Notre Dame doesn't have Andy Ludwig on the staff right now? No. So that's definitely not the the reason. Um, did Notre Dame make mistakes in the process of courting Andy Ludwig? Yes. Um, I, my understanding is Notre Dame was not fully aware of the buyout when that process started. Um, when they found it out, Andy Ludwig, I believe, was already on campus during the interview. Notre Dame insists that they they would have been willing to pay it. Ultimately, they did not um, because Andy Ludwig chose not to come to Notre Dame. Um, but I do think it's a it's fair to point out that there was a failure in process from Notre Dame's point of view, even if Ludwig didn't want to come. Um, you you just, you need to cross your T's and dot your I's better than Notre Dame did in that process. And I like Marcus Freeman's approach there, bringing into the hockey game. I mean, if you've, I've written about this at the athletic, but you know, Freeman wants to sort of showcase the whole Notre Dame, not just like you're in the football facility. These are the players. Here's our weight room. That's it. Don't worry about the rest of campus. You're never going to see the rest of campus. That's not how Freeman wants the program to operate. But I, the optics of that were awful, um, you know, to, to bring him to the hockey game and have the scoreboard showcase him intentionally um, was just a tactical error. And then, you know, when that falls apart, I don't think that the, like, to just say, well, we're going to roll with Jared Parker here. Um, you know, I'm not sure where where Freeman's head was at there. If it, that felt like, all right, this just the Ludwig stuff blew up in my face. I I recruited Colin Klein. I liked him, but he didn't mess with my players. That wasn't a match. 
um, it's it's hard to believe that there there wouldn't have been anybody else out there to go after. But the the clock was ticking at that point. That point of the calendar year was late. I mean, Reese left very late in the process, um, and that I think put Freeman in a little bit of a bind. And you know, it's, there was a while. Um, where especially after the first four games, you're like, okay, maybe the process to get to Jared Parker was screwed up, but the result is gonna is gonna work. Um, the last three games sort of put that in question in a major way, right? Um, so to answer your your just question about like, would is Notre Dame willing to pay for assistance, either salaries or buyouts? Yes, 100 percent. Yes, I cannot stress that enough. Um, and they've been that way really since the Mike Elko situation, where he left after one year. Um, because Texas A&M was willing to be all in on him in a way that Notre Dame kind of hemmed and hawed a little bit and, you know, went back and forth about like, Hey, this is what A&M's willing to do. And Notre Dame ultimately was like, okay, sort of dragged their feet a little bit too much. Um, I'm not sure Elko wanted to leave Notre Dame in any way, but you know, sometimes makes somebody makes you an offer that you can't refuse. So I, um, just to get to Parker was a mess. Um, that doesn't mean Parker was the wrong choice. Ultimately, we'll see. I think this week may have a lot to say about that. But um, the, the the financial resources that Notre Dame has to put, to plow into football are there. Um, but you know, the, the I think with Ludwig and like fans are semi right to point this out like utah's offense has been a, a hot mess this year they're playing i think probably their third or fourth string quarterback but on the also they knew their starter was coming off an acl that he might not be ready to play this season and you know they instead chose to roll with what they got so it um the coordinator stuff will be fascinating after the season uh, to see what these last five games look like for jared parker if he can sort of right the ship a little bit with sam hartman um, or the trend lines of the last three week continue through October and November. That that would make for a very very difficult run in for for Notre Dame and for Marcus Freeman. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with twenty four seven U S based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it. Tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. All right, Matthew R., you are next uh, on the stage on the Shamrock Live. Go ahead with your question. 
Hey Pete, my question was related to doing our best to contain Caleb Williams. Um, yeah. Notre Dame seems to get pressure but not get home a ton. And my maybe twisted thought is that that could not hurt us because as soon as you get one of these defensive linemen about a foot from him, he's going to slide step and, and go right. And I think you're about, you're about cooked when that happens. I'm just wondering if yeah. having these guys off of him a little bit, if you can, I know you can't contain him, but just try to keep him from like ripping out to the left or right ready to throw a bomb. I'm wondering if that can kind of slow him down. Yeah, I think that that was what Notre Dame wanted last year's plan to be. And they, they did a, I hate to say they did a poor job executing, um, but they did a really poor job executing it. Um, and there's a play, I actually did a story with Jack Kaiser um, in the preseason, sort of going over five or six plays from last year. But one of them was, I think Caleb Williams had like a 19-yard scramble on second and 13. And Riley Mills is supposed to maintain sort of the the B gap on the line, and he was right by right by Williams who sidesteps, and all of a sudden, like the defense completely collapses because you need all four defensive linemen to do their job. As soon as one of them doesn't, the whole concept of keeping Williams penned in breaks down. Um, I think Williams only threw one touchdown pass in two games last year, Oregon State and Notre Dame. And I, I want to say, what, it was 18 of 22 or 18 of 23. Like, he was pretty efficient, but, like, did not push the ball downfield a whole lot. Um, also, Notre Dame played that game without its starting nickel um, with Tariq Bracey out. Thomas Harper's supposed to be back this week. Um, that's – I think Notre Dame's secondary is actually – to match up with USC's pass receivers. Um, but then you need the defensive line to play contain against Caleb Williams instead of the, some of the Cavalier stuff that we saw last year. Um, I would, you know, even though Al Golden was like pushed back on the notion of like last year doesn't mean a whole lot. Um, it does because it should give you an experience of how to pen it in and what happens when you don't. Um, and I think we saw a little bit of that against North Carolina state. Um, I think we saw a little bit of that against Duke. Um, Kelly Williams is a different animal entirely from Riley Leonard and Brennan Armstrong. But if you can get the defensive line to sort of all take coaching and play sort of this fence around the quarterback and not get behind him, um, not let him spin out. Um, and like, he's going to make some superhuman plays at some point. And Notre Dame, I think is, is going to get got because um, Caleb Williams gets everybody. But just keeping that to a minimum, I think you've got a chance to to have some success. But that um, the 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 issue last year wasn't how Notre Dame planned to defend Williams; it was the defensive line didn't execute that plan very well, and the end result was him spinning out. I think he only rushed for thirty five yards in the game, but three touchdowns, some back breaking plays. Um, you know, and also like he spun out and then would throw too, like he would scramble to throw, and that that also adds up very quickly because it's impo- like as good as Notre Dame's secondary is, I think it's impossible to sort of defend those receivers for six seconds because you're letting Williams escape from the pocket. So you got to do a better job of keeping him in the pocket, not only just to prevent rush opportunities, but sort of the scramble pass things, which are so hard to defend. All right, next up, Hayden A., you are next on the Shamrock Live. Hey, thanks, Pete. Um, so, you know, going into this season, we kind of all – Assumed that, at least to some degree, Sam Harmon was a good enough quarterback to elevate the play of the wide receivers. And 
you know, to be fair to him and them, the offensive line hasn't done Hartman a lot of favors at various points this season. But, like, mm-hmm. it, it it's starting to feel like, you know, a quarterback can really only, you know, throw a guy open oh so much. Like, he can thread a needle into a window or – a receiver can be so good that he expands the catch radius and gives the quarterback a little bit more room for error. So, mm-hmm. like, what does the – I guess this is just venting about the quality of Notre Dame wide receivers <laughs> more than anything. But, like, what's the threshold to, that you really need to be at at either position to be, like, a really good offense? I mean, does does Notre Dame's third best receiver need to be Chris Fink, Avery Davis, Ben Skoranek? Does it need to be Chase Claypool? I guess that's that's what I'm wondering. Yeah, it's, it's a fair point. Like, if you, I'm sure you watch college football games, and there's plenty of, like, lower-rated lower rated receivers out there making plays. Um, Notre Dame's have, have struggled in that. Like, they got, like, when you look at Notre Dame's receiver group, like, does the term competitive catch like resonate with you? Probably not. Um, Cause Notre Dame just hasn't made a lot of them. Like Jaden Greathouse, his first touchdown against Navy was a competitive catch. But I think a lot of times it's like guys are open and Hartman finds them or he throws them open. Like, um, you know, the Jordan Faison touchdown last week, you know, Hartman's read it and put the ball on the money. Chris Tyree could have been a touchdown last week, put the ball on the money. Um, but what I think was kind of frustrating for me, at least last week, was to see how many times the passing concept ended with Hartman sort of throwing a back shoulder fade ball to Rico Flores on the sideline, including the one that got picked off at the beginning of the game. Like, Notre Dame doesn't, like, if you had Miles Boykin or Chase Claypool, put that ball up there and let the receiver fight for it. Um, but Rico Flores is not that guy yet. Um, I don't, they don't have that guy right now. Um, Jaden Thomas potentially went healthy, but that's still not a, a strength of Notre Dame's receiver room right now, the, that, the competitive catch. So I've been I, – I think that Notre Dame's receiver room is very developmental. Um, but the thing that really stands out most to me is, like, they lack a Claypool – Boykin, um, sort of a receiver who can play bully ball uh, when the ball's in the air on sort of back shoulder fades. Like, there's very little joy for Nurnham's pass game outside the numbers unless it's a crossing route and you include, like, Faison's touchdown as being outside the numbers. Like, it's a lot of um, more hash-to-hash type stuff, which Sam Hartman can be effective at, but... um, when Caleb, like, it's going to happen on Saturday at some point. Caleb Williams is going to throw a jump ball down the field to one of his receivers. And USC is going to think that's like 60 40 or 70 30 to us. When Sam Hartman throws that same ball, I don't know if Notre Dame feels like that's anything more than a 40 60 ball or a 30 70 ball. So um, I know Chancey Stuckey, one of his priorities in recruiting is like, can you adjust to a ball in the air? Can you make competitive catches? Uh, and, you know, right now, Nordham just hasn't made enough competitive catches down the field to help Sam Harbin out, with the exception of Mitchell Evans, which is a huge exception. But um, the receiver position has to help that cause, too, because it's you can't just 
win a game by the offensive coordinator scheming wide receivers wide open. At some point, they've got to be athletes and go out and make plays. And you know that position group just hasn't hasn't made enough. All right, next up, Jacob K. You are next on the Shamrock Live. Hey, Pete. Uh, kind of wish you were doing this live room from the tap house right now because I think everyone on this call could stand to be one or two Smurfs deep <laughs> after last week. Same here. Um, <laughs> so my, my question for you, thinking big picture, right? Next year, Notre Dame, new president, new AD, new chair of the board of trustees. What does that mean for the football, football program as a whole and for, for Marcus Freeman's tenure here? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's a good question because, I mean, the, the news today was, you know, Father John will be stepping down at the end of this academic year. Obviously, everybody knows that Jack Swarbrick will be stepping down as well. Um, you know, Pete Bavacqua, as the athletic director, is he's knows Freeman. Um, so I think that helps. Like, they come in with a pre-existing relationship. And if you spend any time with Freeman, like, he's pretty easy guy to like, pretty easy guy to get along with. I don't know if I would have said the same when Jack Swarbrick came on board and Charlie Weiss was the head coach. So, I mean, but I do think it means that, you know, the guys who took a risk on Marcus Freeman won't be there. Um, you know, Pete Pavacqua and whoever the new president uh, will be won't have skin in the game with Freeman the way that Swarbrick and Jenkins did. Um, like, Freeman was a risk that Swarbrick and Jenkins took, not a risk that Pavacqua and, and the new president will have taken. So that that I think is significant. I think you, you lose a little bit of the benefit of the doubt. Um, so, that, I mean, that's why Saturday, one of the reasons Saturday night's really important, right? You, you need to start rebuilding some of that benefit of the doubt um, after it was lost at the, how Ohio state ended. And then what happened last week at Louisville. And frankly, like the Duke game through the prism of like the last three weeks feels much more like a, a toss up than a game that, you know, Notre Dame controlled or, you know, Notre Dame was just the better team um, or the better prepared team. So that's, I, I think with Freeman, you got to start building some benefit of the doubt here because uh, some has been lost over the last three weeks. There's no, there's no way around that. Um, but, you know, does it put him on the hot seat? I don't, you know, no, but you got to start, you got to win some games. You got to give the, your new bosses, something to hold on to from the season, the same way that you gave your fan base something to hold on to last year with that Clemson game. But, um, yeah, it's like, we see this all the time, all, all over college football, new AD comes in. They want to have their own guys or head coach. Um, I don't think that Bavacqua is going to be itching to do that. Um, the way that maybe some other ADs do, but, um, Freeman's got to make sure that he doesn't give him any, give him any reason to do that too. All right. Ryan B you are next up on the Shamrock live. Go ahead with your question. Yeah, thanks for uh, doing this, Pete. Yep. Um, yeah, so I was just thinking about or um, how how big do you see like the defensive opposition like drop off um, this week from USC compared to the last three weeks? I'm just trying to kind of stay positive thinking about that um, because uh, like limiting Caleb Williams and doing uh, doing that. Um, how well they do that won't really matter if the offense can't um, sustain and finish drives. Yeah, no, it's, um, I do think like the drop off in um, defensive competence for USC is severe, but I, 
I am really reluctant to get too carried away on like Notre Dame will do better because it's opposition is bad um, line of thinking because Notre Dame's offense has not been good the last three weeks. And, you know, you look back at the game last year, they, they couldn't run the ball on USC with much effectiveness. And that was surprising or shocking to me. Um, I thought that would be a real strength of theirs in the game. Uh, and Caleb Williams would just be too good to sort of keep up with offensively that, that wasn't really how last game last year's game felt. I thought Notre Dame lost the game on on offense, um, and then the defense couldn't hold up at the end. But um, Notre Dame should be able to get the outside run game going. That's sort of where USC is most vulnerable. Um, they don't set the edge very well at the defensive end position. Um, I would love to see Jeremiah Love sprinting sweeps uh maybe a jet sweep here or there maybe this would be the time to do that chris tyree jet sweep not on third and one but on second and ten um so i you know usc has a lot of freaking talented players um they don't always like fit well together but you know bear alexander was a five-star defensive tackle from georgia uh, who transferred to usc he's been instrumental in the in the usc defense being better this year but it's not um not an overwhelming amount of talent. Um, they do have some guys. Um, the issue for Notre Dame, I think, is like you're not going to, you know, I say this and then watch it will be pouring rain and 30 mile an hour wins, but you're not going to be able to win this game 17 14. I think that four touchdowns is sort of a minimum for Notre Dame, and they've only scored six in the last three weeks. So it's, they should have more success in part because USC's defense is bad, but it can't just be about the opponent being poor. It's got to be so – it's got to be you played great. Um, you know, that doesn't mean Notre Dame has to score 45 points, but Notre Dame has to play great offensively to keep up in this game um, to give its defense a chance. And I'm – you know, I, I think we all have sort of a you – know, a little bit of a healthy skepticism of that after the last few weeks. All right, next question, Terrence M., you are on stage on the Shamrock Live. Go ahead with your question. I had asked a question in your mailbag this week, which you answered really well with some stats just on Hartman kind of not looking the same maybe after that that knee twist. And I'm not sure yeah. he's super injured, but you, you, you put some really interesting stats, especially on the deep balls, how it's just completely fallen off a map. And I think t- like it, it got me more thinking that that might be like a receiver issue because like they just don't seem to be getting any separation anymore in teams of schemed these like eight and nine man boxes and my question i guess is if you guys internally have heard like have they thought about more audibles or any is it hartman being nervous to audible because it seems like last week that first drive was emblematic of the whole game there's an a nine man box and it looks like they just did a high school audible where like hartman touches his face mask and that means the receiver runs like a a fade but he's not even sure if he's gonna get the ball hartman just kind of tosses up a prayer and it gets intercepted because Flores isn't really even expecting or fighting for the ball. Like, do they have any plans to adjust to eight, nine-man boxes to give Hartman a little bit more of a chance or the receivers in more advantageous positions? Because it just seems like they're operating at almost like a high school audible level where it's like, okay, my man's right on me. I'm going to touch my face mask and I'm going deep. But, like, that seems to be the only solution, and it's, like, alarming. Yeah, it's – I don't know I don't know what their, their audible situation is in terms of, like, what's in play and what's not. Um you know, it, it is kind of one of those things where, like, I mean, they need to do different stuff at the line because I, I, I refuse to believe that when you 
go all out blitz or you put eight guys in the box, there's, there's, there's stuff open. Um, you know, I don't know if Hartman does a great job of the check down uh, stuff. Like I think he wants to push the ball vertically. Like maybe that's part of it, but again, what are we, we've been talking about, like why can the offense score more points? I don't think that taking check downs is like um, going to lead to a, a better or more proficient offense necessarily. And it's like, you know, some of these deep shots, like, it's not on Hartman that Chris Tyree dropped the ball last week um, or the one at Duke to Tobias Merriweather, like tough catch. Yeah. But he got two hands on it um, and wasn't able to bring it in. So I, there's gotta be just a better all better overall operation about how to handle um, loaded boxes. I don't, I don't think it needs to be um, necessarily you chuck the ball deep. Like could you stack Mitchell Evans and Jaden Thomas on one side where at the snap, boom, Hartman turns, whips it to Thomas, Mitchell Evans blocks and, and Thomas tries to make a move. Like that feels like an easy four or five yards where you would start making teams think twice about loading the box. Um, but I, yet you haven't really seen them do that. Um, so I think there's, there's got to be more free access throws out there for Hartman than either what he's seeing or what Parker has sort of, schemed up um if you're gonna load the box there's it's a math problem right like if you put more guys in the box it's fewer guys in coverage but i don't think they does a good job of figuring out where those spots are so i don't know if that's an audible issue i don't know if that's sort of building in uh better run pass options um i don't know where notre dame goes with that but i i'm with you in terms of man this just seems very constipated um like there there should be stuff out there and either Hartman's not seeing it or they're not working on in the week because it's not like Louisville is playing with 13 defenders. Um, there should be some stuff out there that doesn't require heroic catches by the wide receivers to make good. Like if you're sending guys or you're loading the box, like there's got to be a, a quick slant from the slot receiver over the middle that you can hit. Um, or there's got to be like the stay route that I just talked about, you know, over to Jaden Thomas or Jaden Greathouse where, you have a tight end blocking for you. Um, you know, can you run the wheel route off of that? They've tried that a few times. It hasn't clicked. Um, there's, they've got to do a better job of finding stuff out there. Um, Cause it, right now I just don't think they're doing um, a very good job of that. And it's, it's showing in how Hartman has played. Um, all right. No more questions in the queue. I will see if I'm going to scan the chat. Ooh, there's some good stuff in here. Um, Oh, okay. Joey, Joey H. Provocative. The parallels to Brian Van Gorder are stunning. Opposite side of the ball, best friends with the head coach and former experience coaching together. Let's hope Marcus Freeman doesn't hang on too long like BK did. I don't know if Freeman gets a 2016 type year of a do-over and lives to tell about it. So I, I mentioned this in this mailbag this mailbag this week, and I just sort of dismissed the the Van Gorder parallels. I, but I understand what you're saying about like they had a coaching relationship in the past. Um, you know, the difference with Van Gorder is he went into his third season um, and he had what the first six games were great. And then it was an epic collapse with Parker. The first four games were great. And it's been a collapse ever since I um, Parker is much more, um, I think a positive co-working influence than Van Gorder was. I think it's how I would put that. Um, so I, there were some differences there. 
Uh, I don't think Parker is trying to outsmart anybody with like the volume of plays the way that Van Gorder did. Um, you know, I think Van Gorder tried to just install way too much, uh, never taught it very well. Uh, and that showed week in, week out with Parker. I, w- I would like to give it more time than three bad games or some people will contend that the Ohio state game plan was the correct one. It just had a few misfires at some inopportune times. I, you get an audience for me from that argument. I think there's a lot to be said there, but the last two weeks have been bad. Um, and I, I don't want, I don't feel like the Van Gorder comparison is fair, uh, to Parker yet. Um, I just think Van Gorder had, so, like, the 2014 defense at the end, I think, set records for most points allowed over a four- and a five-game stretch. The 2015 team was winning on offense only, um, you know, didn't take advantage of Jalen Smith really in in a way that he could have been. And then, obviously, the collapse in 2016 was a disaster. So, I Parker's got a long way to go for that. Um, for the sake of Marcus Freeman and Notre I hope that, he doesn't get there. Um, I don't, no one needs to see a replay of that, but um, there, the coaching connections going back, that's not that uncommon um, in hiring practices. I think guys do that all the time. I understand why they do it because um, you want to find people that you, know, you can trust and you know, you can work with, but I hear what you're saying. I mean, if the, the jury is very much out on Jared Parker right now and he's, he's going to have to deliver starting this weekend, I think to sort of, rebuild some confidence in Notre Dame's offense, probably rebuild some of his own confidence um, and then, and then go from there. So I think we will wrap it up there on this edition of the, well, actually we do Phil A. We'll wrap it up with Phil A's question in the chat. He says, are there parallels in the way Notre Dame will play USC wide receivers as they did with Ohio state? Seemed like the cornerbacks held up well, but Harper as the nickel and as the safeties gave up the yards to the Buckeyes. Yeah, I do. I do think there's going to be a lot of similarities there, but those end a little bit with like Kyle McCord and Caleb Williams are light years apart as quarterbacks, but USC does not have an Abeka Abuka in the slot um, where USC can match him up against Thomas Harper. And like Thomas Harper gave up some stuff to Abuka. He also made some plays um, and you know, like he's not as good at his position as Cam Hart and Ben Morrison are at theirs. Like that's fine. Um, but I thought – I don't think Harper played poorly against Ohio State. He just got in a tough matchup against another big-time player who, frankly, is more talented than them. Um, and USC does, USC's receivers are good, but I don't – there's no Marvin Harrison that, like, is a gravitational player that forces you to double-team the whole game. Like, Al Golden talked about this and how he saw the end of the game, and he's like, we were not going to let Marvin Harrison beat us. There's not a there's not a receiver at USC where I think Al Golden would say we're not going to let X beat us the way that you know Brian Kelly with Michael Pittman a few years ago we're going to take him out of the game and just we're going to give up what 150 yards to Amon Ross St Brown as a slot receiver and we're just going to live to tell the tale um, I I don't think there's a player like that on USC's roster right now um, so it's I think you can play a little bit more straight up defensively opposed to rotating your defense. Um, to one receiver all the time. Maybe that helps Thomas Harper. Maybe that helps um, DJ Brown a little bit. I don't know, but um, that 
I don't think USC's receivers are going to find a whole lot of joy against Ben Morrison or Cam Hart. Maybe they'll make a few plays, but um, you know, those guys, if those guys win on the outside, outside the numbers, it sort of lets the rest of the defense form an umbrella and there's not a, a Mecca Ibuka to sort of upset the whole operation because he's just so dynamic as a slot receiver. Um, Caleb Williams is probably going to make some incredible throws in this game that, you know, a Morrison or Hart can't stop, but that's what the reigning Heisman Trophy winner you would expect to do. So I, this is why I sort of get back to, I said this already, like, I like Notre Dame's secondary matching up against USC's receivers. And like, how, how many times have we watched this game play out and been able to feel that way? Like, very rare. Um, so I think that is should serve Notre Dame well on Saturday night. Um, Caleb Williams is going to make some plays. If they can keep him penned into the pocket, I think the number of plays he makes will drop off precipitously. And then Nurem's got a chance to get out of there with a with a huge win. I know they're favored by three points right now. Um, I, they're going to have to raise their level of play in a big way offensively uh, and make right on some of the things that were wrong at defensively against USC last year to win. But uh should be a great game on Saturday night. Um, I don't know how many of you will be attending it. Um, the weather is very fall-esque as I'm looking out my office window here on the south side of South Bend. Uh, leaves are changing. The rain, rain is still in the forecast. but should be a great uh, – hopefully it doesn't – well, maybe I'll be in the press box. So if it rains all game, maybe that's fine. Right now the forecast says 55% chance of rain throughout the game. And temps low 50s, very high 40s. Um, not exactly USC conditions, but uh, should be a fun scene tomorrow night. Um, again, a reminder, there will not be a Shamrock Live next week as no name's off, but we're looking for more Pete Sampson talking content. Um, you can check out The Independent, the podcast I do with Matt Fortuna. Uh, we'll have a, a show immediately after the game on Saturday night, Sunday morning, um, so you can get sort of an immediate reaction that way. But until uh, until we talk again next, thanks for being with me on this episode of the Shamrock Live. I appreciate all the questions. Um, it was great interaction. And enjoy the game Saturday night, and then enjoy your bye weekend after that. And we'll be back uh, the Friday before Pittsburgh. Take care. Enjoy the weekend. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.